You can be seated, and I'll dismiss uh, school-aged kids to head to the back. And uh, I'll encourage you, invite you, the rest of you, to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. Um, we're going to cover uh, what Chaz read and the scripture reading at the end of chapter 4, and then we'll cover the beginning of chapter 5 today. Any of you familiar with the book of Acts, chapter 5 is um, Ananias and Sapphira, which um, I assure you has been fun studying this week, uh, talking about the wrath of God against sin and our culture. Um, is not necessarily a fun thing, um, but it is good, and I think God has some, uh, some great things to show us in this passage. And this is really one of the benefits why we try to walk through uh, books of the Bible, um, because that forces us to deal with some of the more difficult passages instead of just the things that we love to talk about. Um, things like the wrath of God are normally not on the uh, brainstorming session around the staff table uh, talking about how, what are we going to teach this next year. So when we go through the book of Acts... And our typical history has been walking through at least one book a year, and uh, we're trying to do Acts and 30 sermons, and uh, we'll, see if we, we'll see if we get there. I know this is true. We love to talk about God as a God of love, and that is most certainly true, but also in his nature that he's a God of wrath. And we're going to talk about both of those this morning at some point. Before I jump in, I'm just going to pray for our time together, and if you would just pray silently as I pray aloud, and would you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, speak to your heart, to illuminate the things that he needs to illuminate, press upon the things that need pressed upon, convict of sin. God, uh, the psalmist prays, uh, who is man that you are mindful of us? And that is certainly um, a thought that has captured my mind this week. That you loved us to such incredible lengths that you sent Jesus for us. And sometimes it's difficult for us to wrestle with your nature and understand who you are. And so I pray this morning as we dig into your word, Father, that you would speak to us. And uh, do so in a way that uh, illuminates the truth, that applies it to our hearts. Prayerfully, it changes our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So a good friend of mine uh, says uh, often that um, in order to grow your love for God, you really need three things. You need theology, you need correct understanding about who God is, and that's why we sit under scripture and teaching like this. Um, that's why Weston awarded you uh, the platinum level for showing up on a day like today. Um... That's why uh, we're always encouraging you to get in the Word of God, to have your own chair time in the morning or evenings, to really consume God's Word as it pours um, over you. As you look into it, it reads you more than you read it, um, that the Word is true and it's living, um, and it tells us about who God is. We know who God is by looking at who Jesus is, and we know who Jesus is through the words of Scripture illuminated through the Holy Spirit to us. That's why it's more than just history to us. In order to cultivate this love of God, we need good theology, we need a good liturgy, just the daily practice of sitting under teaching, of opening the word, of saying prayers before meals and prayers in the evening, of time of praying together with family or whatever that looks like. We need a typical rhythm in our lives that help cultivate our, our love and submission to God and his word. We need theology, we need a good liturgy, and then we need good biography, not just now, that's really twofold. Biographies of the great uh, faith of those that have gone before us. I encourage you to get g good biographies. Read a biography of John Newton or Adam Judson. Um, there's so many great biographies out there of these saints from the past. It's, maybe they would, like they do for me, just create this, cultivate even more so this spark in my heart and this love of God. But second part of biography you need to cultivate this love of God is someone in your life who loves God. You need, to, you need to surround yourself with people who love God more than you love God. Does that make sense? You need, to, you need to be around people who, when they open their mouth, like the words of Scripture come out, that their speech is seasoned like salt, as Colossians says. I'm, I'm no um, idiot to, to know that there are people in this church that love God more than I do, and it does me a great benefit to 
surround myself with those people. And when I'm around them, my heart is uh, emboldened, is spurred on even to the next level to love God even more. And this is one of those passages that claims that, that has a little bit of all of that in there. Um, it has this daily practice, this liturgy of these early saints. It has this good theology. We're going to learn about the nature and character of God. And then it has this biography of we're seeing these uh, few specific men. We're going to end looking mainly at Barnabas and, um, and Ananias, a positive and negative example of what it means to follow the Holy Spirit and be generous. So Jason covered uh, a lot of chapter 4 last week, but I want to pick up in chapter 4 what, uh, what Chaz read. And just a reminder, like the headings in your Bible and the chapter and verses, those weren't written by the original authors of these books. They are, they're there to help us study. And a lot of times we miss the picture, the context of what's going on, because we would start in chapter 5, verse 1. And if you did that here and just read Ananias and Sapphira, you'd miss the whole context. So let's back up. Just a quick reminder that the church had gathered after Jesus risen, the Holy Spirit came down, Pentecost happened, and then we have several chapters of what happens to the church, the birth of the church, when they're emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit. They begin to live out these ideas of the kingdom. This is the Sermon on the Mount made in flesh, like done through the church in Acts chapter, uh, the first few chapters of Acts. So in chapter 4... Um, Let's pick up in in 32 of Acts chapter 4. The full number of those who believed were in one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and this great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So just kind of to recap what's going on here in this, uh, in this passage is as the Holy Spirit works, you see these cultures developed. You see these cultures in the early church. And this is where a lot of our cultures came from that we wrote uh, in the connection guide that Chaz read uh, this of generosity. This comes from this picture of the early church. One of those was this virtue of unity. And this is such a big deal. Unity is such a big deal because this is the very thing that Jesus prays for us in John 17. Maybe you remember in his high priestly prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And on and on he goes to pray that we would be one. Now, I grew up in churches all across the South, and I've been as an occupation, a pastor, a youth pastor for almost the past 20 years, and this is not true of most churches, a culture of unity. Not that we would just act like we're unified, but that we would really be unified. Now, we can do nothing to create unity, but we can do things to destroy it. The Holy Spirit naturally brings unity amongst the brothers and sisters who are in Christ. This is a virtue, this is a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see this is true in this early church. It says, and you might underline that phrase, that they were of one heart and soul. Now this is impossible to manufacture. This is such a work of the Spirit that the church would be completely unified. Remember, these are people from different cultures, many speaking different languages. They're from different races, different classes, different ages, different places with different ideologies. But they had this one major thing in common, maybe the, maybe the two major things. They believed that Jesus was the Lord and he had risen from the dead and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And those two things brought them together in such a way that they were of one heart and one soul. This idea of unity. And this doesn't mean that they had uniformity. Unity and uniformity are different. Unity in our world 
is typically all the people of the same age over here and all those people of the same race over here and all the people of the same socioeconomic background over here, all the people of the same subculture or tribe over here. It's unity around uniformity, but Christianity is not like that and our church shouldn't be like that where everybody's the same. This is about unity, that we all agree on what's most important here and that's Jesus in the forefront and the center of our lives. And our churches should reflect this. Different ages, different races, men, women, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, independent, all of it, because we're not unified based on a subculture or an ideology. We're unified around Jesus. And that is what is so radical about the early church. I mean, that was so radical about the early church as they were so unified. This is the prayer of Jesus in John 17 lived out in the church that they would be one just like Jesus, the Son, and God the Father, and the Holy Spirit were one. I was talking to a friend this week just about the heaviness of my heart for other pastors even in our city and churches in our city that do not have this. And it's such a danger even for Covenant Church that we would drift away from this. And this is something that we pray about every week when we gather as a staff, that, that we would have a unified church. And this is the very thing that Satan aims to destroy in us. And he wants to use you to be the spark that ignites this fire that destroys this unity. I encourage you not to give in to it. Unity should be one of the greatest markers of the Christian faith. And not just in our local church, but across all local churches of Jesus' followers. Paul spends an entire chapter in Ephesians chapter 4 talking about this idea of unity. He points out that individualism is actually a mark of immaturity. Here, unity in the faith, he talks about in Ephesians 4, is the goal to be reached When the world looks at us as gospel-centered community, they should see the fullness of Christ. One person cannot bear the image of Christ alone. It is revealed as believers interact with community, with one another, very different from each other. Again, not uniformity, but that we do it with unity. And we could go on and on and talk about this, how we should honor one another above ourselves, how we should love each other sacrificially. I think this, these themes kind of run through this under this heading of unity. But time won't allow that. The next virtue that I just want to kind of highlight for us as we set the context is this virtue of mission. We read this in verse 33 of chapter 4. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Later on in chapter 5, it says the apostles and the church were gathered in Solomon's portico. And they're, they're declaring the gospel to all that would listen. That Jesus is God and he becomes a man and he lives without sin and he dies for our sin, rises for our salvation, ascends to heaven. And then he's coming back one day. That's the gospel. And that was the message that was on their lips. So we read early in the book of Acts. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to empower his people to continue this very mission. Listen, this is the best thing, church, that you could give your life to. It's the best mission in the history of the world. It's the only mission with eternal consequences. And praise God, church, that we get to be a part of that. And the church, this early church, just can't stop talking about it. Later on in chapter 5, and we're not going to get to that today, they're arrested again, and they're brought before the council, and they're said, hey, listen, again, you just cannot keep talking about Jesus. And they say, hey, listen, we cannot talk about him. Like we, the, the message of the gospel is going to be on our lips. May we be in jail or we be free. May we be beaten or let go. It does not matter to us. This precious gospel, this good news of Jesus. And I don't know what's happened to the church that we can't bring ourselves to muster up enough energy or confidence or boldness to speak the gospel to others. Maybe that's because we don't believe it's good news, or maybe because our heart is numb to the fact that the world is dying and going to a Christless eternity without this good news. This This should be just freely coming off our lips. We should be so passionate about it. So the church can't stop talking about it. And as Weston talked a couple years ago, their, their main thing was, hey, listen, Jesus, the guy that you killed, he's alive. 
Like, go to his tomb. He's not there. He's alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And on two different occasions, you remember already we've covered in Acts that thousands of people came to Christ after a sermon was preached. But so many people were added to the church, not in a big group setting like that. It says that day to day that there were people being saved. That's not from a sermon or a, uh, from a pulpit somewhere, but this is, this is in the streets. It's around dinner tables. It's on the way to work, men and kids and women and grandparents coming to Christ daily, not because of miracles again or clever sermons, but because the message of the gospel being displayed and declared through the early church. These people were using their platforms to share the good news of Jesus. And the call on your life, if you're a Jesus follower, is the same. Your life is the living gospel message to many people who are watching. You claim to be a Jesus follower and they're looking at your life to see what it means. What does it look like? What does such a thing even look like? How does it, you're you're the gospel in the flesh to them. And not just displayed or demonstrated, but also declared. Here's what I want us to see. The call to follow Jesus and the call to mission are the same. Jesus says, hey, you follow me and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And he could have used a million illustrations of what that he would make us, that he would make us better citizens, that he would make us prosper, that he would make us nicer people. But he didn't say that. Listen, when you follow me, the effect, the cause and effect of following Jesus is that he makes you fishers of men. When you accept the call to Jesus, you accept the call to his mission. And that's the truth that should shape the way we raise our kids. It should shape the lens that we view our occupation through. It should shape the way that we plan our rhythms and plan our even vacations. And it should, it, should, it should shape the way we spend our money. It should shape everything about us with Jesus at the center of all things. So we see unity and we see mission and we see generosity. And this wasn't just a virtue that a few people had. They didn't have just a few big givers This idea of generosity is so pervasive through the first few chapters that everyone is talking about it. This is is unbelievable. It became a part of the culture. We see that generosity is evidence of work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One of the evidences that someone has met Jesus and received the Holy Spirit is they have a transition in their view of all that they would call theirs, all of their possessions, We read in verse 31 of chapter 4 that they were filled with the Spirit. And as a result, they began to do these things. They began to declare the gospel. They began to uh, do life in biblical community with this unity at the center. They're participating in the mission of God. And we see this generosity continue to flow. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they gave generously. This cause and effect, the Holy Spirit empowered them to be generous. In addition, we read in verse 33 that they had great power. When Luke uses this language of power, almost always in reference to the Holy Spirit moving through the life of uh, of the church. Let's be honest. You and I, even when I started talking about generosity, we clam up a little bit, right? We check and make sure our wallet's there. You and I are not inclined naturally towards generosity. No, we're inclined to build bigger barns. We're inclined to to save it or to spend it on what we want. Generosity is therefore not natural, it's supernatural. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to do in us. He has to peel our fingers off of what we think is our stuff. God has to change us and connect us to Jesus and provide for us the person and presence and power of the Holy Spirit in us. And one of the things that he births in us As we follow him is generosity. Now that means we're not just looking for ways that we can take. We're not looking just for ways that you can bless me or that my status in life can be benefited. No, we're looking for opportunities in which we can give. We're grateful for the generosity of God. And when we're generous towards others, we want to mirror and reflect and image worship 
to God who is so generous to us. We want this generosity to be shared with others. And so it's a Holy Spirit thing working in our life. Now, Scripture does say that some people have a spiritual gift of giving, just as some have a spiritual gift of teaching or some hospitality or some leadership or administration. Some people literally have this spiritual gift, and we should pray that God would give it to us. These are the people that are leading the way and cashing out, right, so that they can put whatever the Holy Spirit is leading them to do. And I I want to say this, too. Paul says if you're guilted into giving, that you shouldn't give. This should be a natural response of the Holy Spirit working in your life. We've got some of these people in our church, and I love to talk to them, and I've been with them when they, they exercise this gift of giving. Not, not to me or the church, but they do that. But just to random strangers, we've got a guy in our church that when he flies, he likes to go into the restrooms and airports and give the people cleaning those restrooms money. People that you would never notice, he likes to give them money and thank them for what they're doing. It's just a, that's a Holy Spirit thing. Not, we, don't, we, don't, we don't wake up with eagerness to go do that, right? We walk by the homeless people downtown and we, you know, kind of like try not to look at them and, you know, avoid all eye contact. This is a spiritual thing. This is what God does in our hearts. We're going to talk about this a little today because this is really the focus of the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. And no one probably wants to hear a sermon on money. If this is your first time, welcome to Covenant Church. But this is so important because this is one of the great idols of our hearts, especially in the West. This is one of the idols that have grabbed our hearts and if money isn't, itself isn't the idol, it's a means to the idol. It's, we need money to provide for the idol of comfort or money to provide for the status, the idol of status or power. Jesus spends nearly 25% of the gospel talking about money because of its tug on our hearts. The Holy Spirit is not just trying to get money out of your hands. He's trying to get the idol out of your heart. He's dealing with maybe the deep root issue in your soul And in mine. And that is, if you're a lover of money, it's going to lead to all kinds of evil. It makes it hard to simultaneously be a lover of God and a lover of money. Jesus actually says that that's impossible. Treasure ultimately follows your heart. So you want to know where your heart is, just look at your bank account. Just look at where you spend your money. That's where your heart is. So the early church is empowered by the Spirit to be generous. And this wasn't like I'm giving a tithe and just a little more. This was really a result of this deep love for one another. And this is not prescriptive, saying that all of us should cash out our 401ks and, you know, lay it at the at the stage somehow, like this big Santa sack of money. No, that's not, that's not, this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. And this can get legalistic real quick, and I want to avoid that. But this is such a, a deep love for one another that when someone has need, you seek to meet that need. This is something the Holy Spirit does in you, that he prompts your heart. Has he ever done this to you, that you've been sitting, and he's made this need um, You've been made aware of this need in someone's life, and God moves your heart to do this. Now, sometimes we do this as a church, and we take up these big Christmas conspiracy offerings, and we send it to the very ends of the earth, and some of it is led by pastors, but often this is just the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, that if you learn to live with margin, with a little extra, then he's going to prompt your heart to take a step of faith and to bless someone else so that they would glorify God. This is something that God does in us. So when we see here there's not a needy person among them, this was this result of really loving each other. The need to pull their resources was likely the result of so many poor among them. These people were being healed. At the end of chapter 5, Peter's walking around and his shadow falling on people is healing them. 
And what do you know about people who can't make money on their own because, because of some infirmity that they've been born with, that they don't have some occupation? They were poor. They weren't dependent upon the state. They were dependent upon their friends. And so now they're being healed and they're becoming Jesus followers, and there's so many poor among them. But the other reason that this was even necessary that they pull their resources was because of the persecution that left them isolated socially. So our adopted people group in Southeast Asia, this is happening even today. As we've been praying to start new churches and people are coming to Christ. And when they make this decision to come to Christ and lead animism or Buddhism or whatever religion that their village uh, is a part of, they're forced out of their community immediately. Like not, you know, you're dead to me kind of thing. So they're not welcome in their family anymore. They're forced out. And many of these new believers have had to form new communities of believers just so they would find acceptance. And so there was great financial need. So the church begins saying, hey, if you got something that you can sell that would benefit, then maybe the Holy Spirit would lead you to do that. They began giving without expecting anything back in return. This is an ethic. Maybe you remember that Jesus taught in Luke 6. Lend expecting nothing in return. This is radical generosity. And it's, not, it's a mark not just of the early church, but what it means to follow Jesus. Again, this is not a legalistic thing or self-promoting thing. I'm not talking about this this morning because we as a church need your money. This is about your heart. And this is what leads to this crazy story at the end of uh, at the, at the, uh, at the end of chapter four and beginning of chapter five. We see two examples. Let me read them for you real quick of generosity, one positive and one negative. All these people are doing it in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, one, I love that they give each other nicknames. This is kind of cute, isn't it? That this is like, man, you're not Joseph anymore. You're Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias, whose name actually means God is merciful, with his wife, Sapphira, which means beautiful, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. You think? The young men rose and wrapped him up. These were probably the interns. The young men always get the tough job carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this, this much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Here we are with fear again and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It's a crazy story, is it not? Here we see two examples of generosity, a positive, negative, maybe one example of generosity and one example of its antithesis, which is greed. One of radical generosity, one of pervasive greed. First, let's look at Barnabas. As you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see Barnabas is one of Luke's heroes. He mentions him 23 times. 
He really illustrates this new name given to him. He's such an encouragement to others. And I wish we could had time to talk about all, we'll, we'll, we'll mention him several times, but man, Barnabas is just, he's just, he's just a stud. He, he's introduced by being this, uh, this, this nobody at first, and then he liquidates some piece of land and, and he sells it. And he's the one that kind of begins this movement of generosity in the church on this, on this even grander scale that this thing begins to happen. He's generous with his time. He's the one when Paul has the, uh, the fallout with John Mark, John Mark kind of quit on him. And uh, Paul says, I'm not taking him again. Barnabas says, that's fine, I'll take him. He's generous with his time. He's patient and long-suffering. He takes John Mark with him. He's generous with his money selling the field. He's generous in rearranging his life to join the mission of God. He's generous. He's the one that befriended Paul when no one would get around him. Paul became a convert, and, you know, he's like, you know, part of the Jesus team now, and everyone is like, nope. And Barnabas is like, that's fine, I'll take him. Barnabas is the one that kind of trains Paul, takes him under his wing. It's the two of them. They're at the church of, uh, at Antioch in Acts 13 when they're praying. And, and God says, set apart for me Paul and, uh, Paul and Barnabas. And that's for the first time you see the switch. That Barnabas goes from the mentor to the mentee. And he just takes it as a stride after chapter 13. It's no more Barnabas and Paul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is just there for support. He doesn't have to have the, the stage. He doesn't have to have the limelight. He doesn't need accolades. He's just there to serve. And from the bottom of my heart, I am so thankful for so many of you in this church that that's just your attitude. You're just here to serve. You just want to see a need and meet a need. And that is the person of Barnabas. And so he's introduced by selling his field and bringing this sack full of coins or whatever and laying them at the apostles' feet it probably would have created this incredible spectacle. And then we see into the heart of Ananias that he wanted to do something similar. See, when, when Barnabas did this and the other people in the church did this, liquidated, the church just kind of just, you know, man, way to go, Barnabas. And he's blessing all these people. And now we see, because then we get to see from God's perspective into the heart of Ananias he loved the praise of the people. And so he wanted to contrive a way that he could do both. That he could get the praise of the people because he was looking more spiritual than he really was. But he could also save some money in case this whole church thing didn't work out. In case this whole Jesus movement didn't really take off. That he, he kind of hedged his bets. And so that's what Ananias did. And we see very quickly that it didn't turn out well. Now, let me say, I'm going to give you five points of application of what we learned from Ananias, and then and we're wrapping up, and I'm going to be quick in this. But there are some things about this that we just do not know when we read this, and then we immediately think, wow. Why did God do that? Why did he exact judgment in that way at that time on those people? And there's, there's several things that we do know, but there's still several things that we don't know. So I don't want to stand up here and act like that, you know, I've got this divine insight into this. Here's, here's what we do know. That in the church, there are two kinds of people, and it's nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. Ananias and Barnabas... They, they, they looked pretty much the same. They were both leaders in the early church. They both sold the field. They both brought the money. From the outside, from the churchgoer, you, you just see, man, they just look exactly the same. You look at Barnabas, you see what he did. You look at Ananias. But deep in their hearts, there were a difference. Barnabas leveraged everything that he had for the glory of God and the growth of the church. And Ananias leveraged everything he had to build his own kingdom. Deep in the heart of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, there was a love for money and a controlling desire for the praise of people. And it was the motivation that led to all of this. Jesus talks about this in his parable of the wheat and the tares, that they grow up together. And you'd be foolish to go start you know, you trying to decide you don't know, but there is a time when you do know, and that's harvest time. Because the wheat bear fruit and the tares do not. And this is a warning from Jesus. And I'd be foolish to think as a pastor that they're not both growing up even among us, that there's some people even in this room that are just playing a religious game. 
trying to ease your conscience before God, you're showing up, you're giving a little money, you're serving where you can, but inside, there's never been a heart change. You've never given your heart and life to Christ. This is, you're motivated by, by other things. But there are some people that have been truly converted and part of the church that are looking to please God with all that they have. This kind of leads to the second thing is that we can't hide from God. Second lesson we learn from this is we, we can't hide from God. Nothing is hidden from God. The best poser among us. You may have everyone tricked. You ever watch those stories on Dateline about people who live like double lives? That they got two different families and you think, man, that's amazing. How did they do that? That just seems like it would take so much work and remembering what lie you told and where you were. Even the best posers among us cannot lie to God. Nothing is hidden from him. Scripture says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. There are no locked doors or hidden closets for the Holy Spirit. We see by this example that God looked at their heart and saw that it was wicked for Ananias and Sapphira. Their desire for human praise was more important to them than being faithful to God. We cannot hide from God. Third thing we learn is the closer we are to grace, the greater offense of our sin. Not everyone who lies to God gets struck down. We know that, right? Because most of us are still here. That, that we've not been faithful with everything, that we've messed up and we've get it, got into sin, but yet we've experienced grace. And I think that's part of the reason why this passage is so difficult as we wrestle with it. But the closer we are to grace, the greater offense of our sin. Their death served as a sign that God takes something true that is true in the kingdom of God and he puts it on physical display. Like the healing miracles, that God didn't want people to live like this. And so when we see the picture of God working in the healing miracles before and after this, this is something that's true in the kingdom of God in present or active even right now. And that's true in that line. It's also true in the wrath of God falling upon these two. In the healing miracles, you get people who have faith in God. And they're healed. And in Ananias and Sapphira, you get people who have faith in themselves. And they're exposed. Now, God doesn't do this to everyone who lies to the Holy Spirit. But that should not cover up how God feels about sin. Man, God hates sin. You know what? As I read this, I remembered this. This is very similar to kind of the same setup of Peter. You remember when Jesus told the disciples that he was headed to the cross and Peter stood up and said, you'll never do this. That's not the right way. Jesus calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Satan had whispered into Peter's heart and he had said something. But the difference between Peter and Ananias and Sapphira is Peter owned up to his sin and God forgave it. It's not the sin that caused Ananias and Sapphira to be struck down and, you know, see the judgment of God in that very moment. It's what they did with their sin once it was confronted. Peter owned his sin and asked for forgiveness. This is what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, not arrogant trying to hide our sins, if we confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just the things that we confess, but as the Holy Spirit moved and illuminated this sin in life, this is what 1 John's talking about, and we confess those things, then all the other sins are also dealt with and forgiven as we respond to the Holy Spirit, but Ananias and Sapphira, even having the chance in their arrogance, they hid it. It wasn't the sin that was fatal, it was the covering of it up. Church, can I remind you that God wants to forgive? That he is long-suffering and his kindness is what leads us to repentance? But we've got to own up to our sin. We've got to confess. We've got to bring it forward. We've got to agree with God that this was not right. How could someone be so close to God 
seeing all the miracles, being part of all the great stories of deliverance and change and still make this mistake. They let their love of themselves and for their kingdom overshadow their love for God and a desire to grow his kingdom. And church, every day we have to make that same decision. Every day we wake up, we have to make that very same decision. Who's gonna sit on the throne of my life today? Is it gonna be myself and I'm gonna live for myself and unto myself and build things for myself? Or is it gonna be the Lord Jesus? There's only one throne in the room of your heart and it's either you or Jesus sitting there. Fourth thing we learn as we're trying to push through this is that fear is a part of worship. Unsurprisingly, these dramatic deaths cause a great deal of fear. It says in verse 5 and again in verse 11, but we may be shocked to see if you read down in verse 14 that more and more people are believing in the Lord because fear is an integral part of worship. For those of us familiar with the idea of an infinitely loving God, this is a jarring realization, but God's love only makes sense when we know the magnificence of his glory and the might of his power. That's why John Newton, the famous hymn writer, wrote, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." As the fear of God increases, so does the sense of his love because we understand more fully what we have been saved from the depth of our sin and the height of his love met on the cross of Christ. My favorite definition of fear, the fear of God, is all mixed with intimacy. All mixed with intimacy. Tim Keller has a book on prayer that's, that's the tagline, all mixed with intimacy. I love this picture that we are invited into the, the closest possible relationship with God, but this intimacy must never overshadow the majesty of who God is. And this is such a part of worship, knowing that our sin deserves death, but a holy God has made a way for us to experience forgiveness and grace. So powerful. Fifth thing that we learn real quickly is that sin is a serious matter to God. How many of us read this thinking, wow, God's a little harsh here. This is the New Testament. I thought this was the age of grace, but this illustration of these people dying, it bothers us. And you know why it bothers us? Because we're not dead. Well, if God kills people who don't give enough, well, what am I doing here, right? If God kills bad stewards, then we should all be dead. But God gives grace and grace upon grace. And if we're honest, many of us find God's actions here offensive, but that merely reveals our ignorance of our sin and God's holiness. We shouldn't ask the question, why did they die? Instead, we should wonder, why do we remain alive? God is patient with us and slow to anger, Scripture says. R.C. Sproul says it this way. We forget that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, not to become bolder in our sin. If Jesus really went through the tormenting hell of the cross to redeem us, and we neglect that in pursuit of our own sin, then what will it be like to stand before God on the day of judgment? The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The outcome for Barnabas and Ananias was very different. One becomes one of the greatest leaders of the early church, and the other becomes an example and warning of the danger of testing God. The danger of letting money grip your heart, the danger of hedging your bets, the danger of being halfway in. Like the nation of Israel, this couple had tested God by rejecting his goodness and denying by their action that righteousness is a virtue to possess in God's community. They took the matter of their reputation into their own hands and in their own way and with tragic outcome. You know, even sometimes when we do God's work, but we want to do it in our way, that is not what God is asking us to do. Self-righteousness and the praise of others is no real substitute for walking 
of God. I want us to see too, just as I wrap this thing up, that even though the early church had this failure, that God's spirit kept moving, the gospel keeps multiplying. I think sometimes we're tempted to think of this early church as perfect and so idealistic that there's no way that we could attain such kind of community. But I think Luke just proves over and over to us that they had moments of weakness. They had members that lied and were hypocritical and inconsistent, probably just like the rest of us. So we shouldn't idolize the early church that way to start to think that they experienced something that we cannot. God didn't need it to be perfect to bless them. And we can look for the same blessings as they experienced. Encouragement is not to give up on the church, that God blessed the church and continue to bless it despite this couple. Maybe there's a few thought-provoking questions that I can end with before we go to communion. Might lead to some action, maybe repentance on your part. Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you really are? Are you playing some kind of spiritual game today if posing for the crowd, saying all the right things, standing and sitting and whatever it, whatever it involves? Or are you pretending to have your act together when really your life's falling apart? Are there areas of known hypocrisy in your life? Maybe you've identified them as struggles and don't like to call them sin anymore, but areas of evident hypocrisy. Jim Elliott, the great missionary to Ecuador, speaking about this very text, said it reminded him of the thousands of Christians who sing, I surrender all, but have given God an unyielding no about their whole lives. They will say what we want to say. He goes on to sing that Christians don't tell lies, we sing the lies. Church, is there a part of your life that you've just said, God, you can have everything but this? You can have everything but my money. You can have everything but status. You can have everything but, but, but what my lips declare. You can have everything but this. Everything but my family. Everything but my occupation. God, I'll give you everything but this. We're saying one thing that we're giving it all to him, but in our heart, there's this unyielding no in Elliot's words. That there are areas of our lives that we refuse to let God touch. What's the area in your life that you won't give to God? Are you taking advantage of the spirit of grace and of God's kindness? His long suffering is there so that more and more would come to him. But some just take advantage of that. I want to end by giving us all a chance just to spend some time in repentance. Maybe if you're thinking about, well, I don't know exactly what that is. Maybe it's the same thing as Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe it's the praise of men or the love of money. But it could be anything. I don't know what little idols are in there that you're covering up. Paul tells the church in Corinth that before you take communion, you ought to really look inside your heart and see kind of where you're at, if there's any unconfessed things. And so I'm going to give you that same opportunity. We're going to take communion here in a minute. When we take communion, we remember that we, we gave God our sin and he gives us our Savior. When we take the bread, it reminds us that Jesus gave his body for us. And we take the drink, we remember that Jesus gave his own blood for us, for our sin. Paul reminds us, before you do that, you ought to look inside your heart. Make sure you come with a clear conscience. Maybe some in this room, you're not even... You're not even part of God's family. You may, maybe you know what it to look like and how to, how, to, how to act, but you've never trusted him. You've never given your life to him, and I would encourage you to take that step of faith today. Would you pray with me? We're going to take communion here in just a minute, but I'm going to give you some time just right where you are just to deal with God on a heart level. 
There sits before you two roads this morning. It's the road that builds your kingdom or the road that builds his. Matter of fact, that's a decision we have to make every day. What Romans 12 would call being a living sacrifice. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We know your word tells us that you are the very definition of love and you loved us to such an extent that you sent your very own son to die for us, to purchase salvation for us on the cross. And that all we need to gain salvation and eternity with you is nothing. There's nothing we bring to the table. All we do is take a step of faith. And even in that, you provided us the faith to take the step. And so I pray for some of these people today in our gathering that they would take a step of faith. Others, Holy Spirit, would you convict of sin, even if it's sin in some back closet of our heart that we've largely ignored for a very long time? Lord, would you deal with our sin? Lord, we want to be this church that loves you, a church of unity and on your mission, radically generous. That unconfessed sin wouldn't be a barrier for such things. Lord, that you do work in us and through us. Thank you for Jesus and what he means to us. It's in his name that we pray, amen. I'll be standing in the back if someone would like to pray with me. Um, our ushers are up here to... Serve communion. You come when you're ready. And the band will lead us in worship to close out the service.